All right, well, good morning. My name is uh, Jeremy Broder. I've been coming here to Seven Mile for the past year. Actually, uh, this month makes a year that we've been here. I first came in contact with Seven Mile about two years ago when I was in the process of planting a church in Fall River, Massachusetts, about an hour south of here. Uh, spent about 10 months there um, before I had to step down to take care of my son who was sick at the time. And so having made some contact with Seven Mile and gotten to know some of the leaders here, I called up and said, hey guys, I really need a place where I can just land for a year. And so uh, they took me in and I got to participate in the pastor track for this past year. And now I'll be rolling into the next year of that. Uh, I'm very excited to be able to be here and preach this morning. It's a, a real privilege. It's been about 13 months since I've been in a pulpit. So uh, it's exciting to be back and to be able to open up God's word and speak it to you. Um, I don't remember if it was a news report or one of those mass emails that gets sent around, but I saw somewhat recently, I looked this up, and there's actually um, a term for it. They call it illusory superiority, or another term for it is the better-than-average effect. And in a report that was published in 1999, Um, they found that this effect is strongest in areas where people are actually weakest. And so, for example, um, the people with the lowest IQ actually had the largest gap between their actual IQ and the way that they perceived their IQ. Um, They actually titled the report, Unskilled and Unaware of It, How Difficulties in Recognizing One's Own Incompetence Leads to Inflated Self-Assessments big words, but it's funny. And, and what it gets at is the heart of our ability to deceive ourselves about who we really are. So let's take that concept and make it practical. I've been in the job hunt for a period of time, and I was recently hired. Uh, during the process of sending out my resume, uh, my cover letter would have been a prime example of illusory superiority. So I had a son who was sick, and I went to EMT school. And so in my cover letter, I told everybody that because of my personal experience, I would be ready to go on day one. I've done some emergency-type things. I'm I'm a little bit more accustomed to it, so I am a better-than-average newbie. I got hired uh, the first not-even-an-emergency, stable emergency that I went on. I was shaking. I was ready to cry. I couldn't give a report to the nurse. It was terrible. Um, It took some exposure to the actual field of being an EMT for me to be able to be aware, truly, of how little I knew. Um, And so my identity as a competent EMT was a fabrication. I had deceived myself as to what my ability actually is. And so it should come as no surprise to us that that same ability to self-deceive could uh, be at work in our spiritual lives. Um, We're preaching through the Old Testament book of Proverbs, and we're seeking to correct our folly by running to God and begging for his wisdom. And our text this morning addressed the folly of fabricating a righteous identity and calls us to the wisdom of seeing and understanding our relationship with God rightly. And in particular, what we really want to know is our sin, its consequences, 
and its remedy. So as we progress through um, the texts this morning, uh, we'll build a a really concise statement that you'll be able to take away. Uh, But before we do that, let's just go back one more time and look at the two texts in Proverbs that we'll be spending most of our time with. The first is Proverbs 30. Matt read from verses 11 to 14, but I'm really going to focus in on verse 12. It says, There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. And then Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? And so in the pursuit of God's wisdom today, we're going to dig right into knowing our sin. And then we'll begin to get into some of the foolish ways that we construct identities that somehow downplay or disregard uh, the actual extent of it. So let's begin digging right in to knowing our sin. And, And in this situation, we actually face a bit of a conundrum, and it is that because of our sin, we have a difficult time fully being able to see our sin. And uh, in, in a minute, we'll actually dig into some of the scriptures that explain why. Um, downplaying our sin um, is really what we're getting at. And, and, and so when I think of myself as sinful, I tend to think of my sin in terms of filth as something more along the lines of uh, dirt underneath my fingernails or grass stains some small imperfections. The word here that's used to describe filth is, is far more descriptive than that and far more disgusting. Uh, it's actually the word for excrement. And so right up front, we get hit in this passage with the idea that our sin is something really, utterly disgusting and filthy. And so let's look at the extent to which that filth really pervades who we are. And I'd like to actually start that just with a bit of an analogy. So I went to the beach when I moved up to Malden two weeks ago. Um, I really like the idea of a beach. Um, Cool breeze, water, um, sun. I don't really like the beach in reality. Uh, And the reason why is it's the sand. Every time that you go near a beach and you come within the proximity of sand, it fills everything. Sand defines the experience of the beach, and so it gets into every crevice. You breathe it in. It gets in your nose. You don't even have to be there yet. You pick up a sandwich, you're chewing sand. It gets on your fingers. And so when you go to wipe it off, it's just spreading it around. The only way to get the sand off is to be washed of the sand. And sin is much the same. We're permeated by it. It pervades us, and it affects our motives, our thoughts, our wills, the very core of our being, and our actions then emerge out of that. The term that's used to define this condition is total depravity. 
Uh, some people call it pervasive depravity. The same idea as the sand is pervasive. Our sin is pervasive. And this doesn't mean that every single person is as evil as they could be or that everything that we do is as evil as it could be. But what it means is that every single part of us is affected by sin. Um, I'm going to run through some scriptures without actually uh, quoting them, but just to kind of get a, a quick hit of what the Bible says about our sin. Uh, we find that our minds and our consciences are defiled or contaminated by them. Our hearts, the very core of who we are, are sick and deceitful. We don't seek after God. We don't fear God. We're spiritually dead. We're unable to understand spiritual truths. And that gets back to our difficulty in actually being able to honestly assess who we are because we can't assess spiritual truths, because we don't seek after God, because we don't fear God, we devalue our actual extent of sin. And so as a result, we're ultimately estranged from God relationally to the extent that we're actually called children of wrath in the scripture. And then because God is holy and God is just, and because as his creatures, we were intended to be worshipers, Our filth is a direct affront to his holiness, and so we are justly condemned. So the point is that sin is not merely what we do in our actions, but it is at the very core of who we are. And then our actions reflect the sickness of our souls and our corrupted desires, our corrupted thoughts, our polluted hearts. And then if we look at the text that we read earlier in Proverbs chapter 30, it lists some of the ways that sin emerges. And so an example would be cursing of mothers and fathers, arrogance and haughtiness, or injustice to the poor. Corrupted hearts begin to emerge through corrupted actions. So that's the reality of what our sin is. How do we see ourselves? What are the ways in which we look in the mirror and in self-deception say, I'm all right? And I have three tiers here that I'd like to just very quickly run through. By no means is it an exhaustive list, but I think it captures uh, a good chunk of how people respond. The first uh, would be the loosely religious or the good deed doers who say, You know, I'm really not that bad. And the amount of good that I do tips the scales in my favor. I have a coworker who kind of refers to this concept in a karma type of sense. Um, When he receives some bad, he's paying in advance for a bad that he's going to do. When he receives some good, it is um, the just response to the good that he's already, already done. And he lives his life just trying to stay on the positive side, just trying to tip the scales of his goodness, totally downplaying the extent to which sin pervades who he is and only looking at the external actions. The second tier, um, we've thrown around some different words for this when we were early on planning uh, this sermon series. We called it Justification by Charity Walks. 
Um, the term that I've given to it is champions of moral causes. And so we become defined by the things that we consider to be good and then invest our lives in, in contrast to the things that we consider to be evil that we're trying to remedy. Um, I spent a good chunk of my life here. So I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a Christian church. I heard the gospel preached. But to me, it was simply a series of moral standards. And so God was in favor of X, Y, Z. And as long as how I lived was in support of X, Y, Z, I was in God's good graces. And so here comes another term for it, justified for me by political affiliation. I was involved in party politics. I got elected to office. I campaigned for uh, other people who were running candidates for office. And since my side was good and the other side was evil, God had to love me because there I was investing my effort in furthering his moral standards. The third tier, and I spent some time here also, is the devoutly religious or religious performers, those who keep the rules, who consider holiness to be a matter of external compliance to a series of rules. And and such were the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They insisted on strict compliance with their particular set of religious rules. This isn't an exclusively Christian phenomenon. Um, You can find it in many of the world's major religions where people follow the rules, and because of their rule following, they are in God's good graces. They have his favor. And so I'd just like to call you again to hear the words, hear Jesus' wisdom in response to any kind of external rule-keeping, whether it be at the simplest level of just being a good deed-doer, all the way up through following devoutly and rigidly religious rules. And it's in Matthew 23, as we read earlier. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Jesus teaches in his wisdom that our filth cannot be expunged through any form of external performance or affiliation. Because the problem is not primarily with what we do. The the issue is primarily within our hearts, within the core of our being. It's the fool who fabricates a righteous identity based upon external works. And so this truth led the Apostle Paul to regard even his accomplishments as filth. He refers to that in Philippians chapter 3 where he says, Everything that I've done, 
all of my moral attainments, all of the things that I have accomplished in my own strength are rubbish or dumpster slime. Our filth needs to be washed clean. It cannot be wiped off. So what is the remedy? And that's the question that we saw asked in Proverbs 20, verse 9, where it says, Who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. And no surprise, it's the gospel. The remedy is that while we were sinners, while we were corrupted to the core, God loved us, God sent his son for us, and Jesus took our sin in our place. In the book of Titus, Paul says it this way. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's God's work. Nothing that we do can clean us from our sins. And again, where Paul was listing his own attainments as just being filth, he goes on to say this, that his identity as righteous is not based upon his works, but his identity is being found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own, Paul speaking, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So, how do we sum this all up? And here's just the the one phrase that you can take away. The fool fabricates a righteous identity, but the wise know their sin and find their righteousness in Christ. And so how do we apply this? For those of you who have been here for a while, those of you who have come to faith in Christ, those of you who find your righteousness and your identity in him, continue to believe the gospel. It's really that simple. The gospel is such amazingly good news when it is set in contrast to the terribly bad news of who we really are. And it's easy over a period of time as God works in our lives to sanctify us, as we begin to have less and less external, obvious sinfulness, to begin to think that we're all right. We have to go back to the gospel and realize that nothing in our sanctification, nothing in our salvation, period, is of ourselves. Everything is a gift of God. And so, be warned, but be encouraged to continue to believe the gospel. Go back to the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel in your soul care communities. And so, as I told you, um, that I spent a period of my life as a, um, a religious performer that creeps back up. And so, maybe if nothing else, I'm preaching the gospel to myself today and reminding this. But when I get into the pastor track and we're sharing sins, or when I get into my soul care group and I'm confessing, 
I have this terrible fear of being judged. I have this terrible fear of being known as if somehow my righteous standing and my identity is still based upon what I do. And so it causes me not to reveal everything that's going on because I don't want to be seen externally and I don't want to admit to myself what my heart is actually like. I'm drawn to downplaying my sinfulness. And yet within those groups, they preach the gospel back to me. And once again, call me to remember, I'm not justified by my works. I'm not righteous by my works. And no external compliance is going to earn my standing with God. And so preach the gospel to each other in soul care. And then in the off chance that you're here and you've never heard the gospel before, maybe you fall into one of those categories. I would just call you to a sober evaluation, if I could steal the words that Dan used about a month ago, and see, are you relying on yourself for your righteousness? And if so, believe the gospel. Turn to Jesus. Realize that he has taken your sin, he has made payment for it, and he offers his righteousness as a gift apart from any works that you could do.